Welcome to Bible study today. We as a panel share a very big responsibility in presenting the Word of God to you that you may understand it. On our panel today we have firstly Helen. Welcome Helen. Thank you Len, it's a delight to be here, thank you. And we have Will. Welcome Will. I'm part of a good team here by the looks of things, thank you. And Ken, welcome today, Ken. Thank you, Len. Always a pleasure to be here. And Brenton from the deep southeast. Welcome, Brenton. Thank you, Len. It's always good to share God's word with our listeners. And we have Joe from down south on the Florio Peninsula. Welcome, Joe. Thank you. Good to be here. And today I'm going to be the facilitator of this Bible study. So let's start right in. You know, anyone who's read the Bible through know that it has much to say about other subjects than just spiritual ones. However, the Bible teaches that other disciplines and studies must be kept in their proper perspective, in that all knowledge is from God. Science is esteemed by some to be of greater importance than God. The studies of and conclusion drawn from much science are regarded as more important than the one who made it in the first place. Instead of testing God's word, the Bible, by science or other disciplines, it is wise methodology to test the truth of other discoveries and disciplines by the Bible. God's word must be and is paramount, because God does not lie. God cannot present false information. God's word is reliable and trustworthy and deserves your attention. In this day and age of scepticism, humanism and secularism, it's important for all, whether young or old, to build their worldview on the truth of the scriptures and the principles contained therein. Now, before we go any further in this study, I'm going to invite Joe if you would like to pray for us and the listeners. Dear Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to open your word again and to allow you to speak to us. We thank you, Lord, for the wonder of life, the beauty of creation, all the things that we often take for granted and we pray that you send your Holy Spirit to be with us, to enlighten our minds and help us, Lord, to step a little closer, draw us a little closer to you through your word and the panel and our discussion. Be with our listeners as well, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Joe. Well, now, Ken, nature is often called God's second book. As you study the life forms and their organisation, structure and functions, what sort of impressions do you get? Well, it's such an amazing subject. As we know, the Bible is an amazing book to start off with. But as you said, nature is often God's book revealed to us, I think, in a practical and sensual way. As we look at the world around us and all the different life forms, we just see amazing things 
And over the years, the more I've looked into certain, say, animals and, and things like that, it's just amazing how these things are all put together and how they work. And recently I've been doing some, I don't know, studies, maybe not the right word, but certainly looking at uh, how the body performs and, and how it heals itself. And I think anybody who would take the time to look into some of these things, especially in the body, it is absolutely phenomenal how this machine that we have works. It, it's just beyond, I believe, our understanding. It's such an incredible piece of workmanship that I don't see how anybody could say, oh, this is this just come to be on its own accord. The uh, the functions of the, the body down to the cells and everything, how it's put together and how they interact with each other and how the body heals itself and all these defences, it's just it's, it's mind-blowing. And I, I really would, would encourage people, if you have any doubts about God and the Bible, just get some books or look at some videos on how the body works and the intricates of it. If you, after looking at these things, uh, are, are not compelled to think, well, this, this isn't an accident, well, I think there must be something missing. All right. Thank you for that, Ken. Yes, Will? Beyond the life forms here on Earth, um, I recall that um, Charles Spurgeon wrote in uh, 18, well, preached a sermon in 1873 and which he says something simple. He says, our little children look up to the stars and think them little pinholes in the sky. And they say, twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. But when the astronomer fits his telescope to his eye and peers upon those mighty orbs, he says with greater truth, how I wonder what you are. Yes. In fact, um, I share this thought that I look at things and I wonder. As a small child, I was watching a spider weave its web. I thought, how beautiful. Who taught that spider to make a web? And I see God in nature. Now, the psalmist, David, he observed nature. How did he relate? To God, Helen. Well, I think his words are beautiful. It's in Psalm nineteen one to four, and and in that psalm, David is actually meditating on God's creation, and and it brings him back to his actually his own sinfulness, which is equally interesting. But when he talks about nature, he says the heavens proclaim the glory of God, the skies displays His craftsmanship, and day after day they continue to speak. Night after night they make him known. They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard, yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. And when I read that, every night before I go to sleep, I pull back a curtain and I look up and I see the stars. And if I don't see the stars, I believe the stars are still there. So that's where faith comes in. But in seeing the stars and knowing that God knows all the stars and has put them in place, gives me that assurance that God is still in control of this world. It's comforting for me to know that we have a creator God um, who shows his power in order and symmetry and he sustains everything. 
I, I just find that's just totally, absolutely amazing. And when it says that, you know, they don't speak, well, I don't believe that they mean speaking with a voice as such because there are other ways of speaking. And um, one way that I speak with some of my friends is to use Auslan Sign Language. And, of course, there's no words coming out of my voice, but it is a speech. And the stars literally speak to me in, in a similar manner. So the stars have a message to proclaim. I believe so. Brenton? Uh, I'm going to deal with the moon, not the stars. Um, I don't know whether our listeners would be aware that on July 20, 1969, Nan first landed on the moon. Neil Armstrong was the first man to step on the moon. 19 minutes later, Edward Buzz Aldrin stepped on the moon. What is not generally known is that the first thing that he did was to take communion. This is the first recorded uh, example of communion ever being taken on the moon. Uh, he said he felt that it was totally appropriate and he describes how he was putting the communion wine in his cup. And, of course, with gravity only being one-sixth of that on Earth, the uh, communion wine was floating up towards the top of the cup. And uh, he quoted John 15, verse 5. He didn't say it out loud, but he said, In my mind, I was quoting John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches, etc., etc. Um, it's interesting that of the early astronauts, particularly from America, who travelled to uh, into space, either onto the moon or out in that area, many of them then were Christians. I think they might have got a better appreciation of God's handiwork in the um, universe in the way that they were operating. So really, in his case, he recognised God as the creator of the universe. Yes, yes, he does say that. And he saw it perhaps on a large scale, we can also see it on a microscopic scale. Yes, Ken? I just wanted to add to that. I think that's really amazing. As many of us know, many of the astronauts were Christians or became Christians. But here we have men, what I would call uh, men of science, really, really very, very highly educated specialists in what they do about science and all uh, and these incredible machines to the moon. And yet... They, they believe in a God has created everything. Yes. All right. Well, now, Brenton, of course, not everybody believes as uh, in God as creator. There are other theories around. How does the Bible describe those who don't believe in God, in other words, agnostics? Yes. So, Lynn, can I share Psalm 14.1? Um, which is an interesting verse um, because, first of all, it starts out with a statement, then it uh, goes to behaviour. It says, The fool has said in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. A result of not acknowledging God in your life is a corrupt lifestyle. Now, I found that particularly interesting because you know the word fool in uh, Psalm 14, one is the word Nabal, N-A-B-A-L. Now, we know of a Nabal in the Old Testament. He was the, uh, uh, the husband of Abigail, and she said that the name Nabal means fool. Um, David, writing this psalm, 
suggests that the reason why people are foolish, I, I believe, is this. I believe it's because they lack moral discernment. They lack spiritual judgment. They lack the ability to be able to discern between good and evil, which for those who were listening to our program last week would recognise that um, we um, talked about Solomon's wisdom and what he asked for. And what he specifically asked for was the, the ability to discern between right and wrong and to judge fairly. Now, in Psalm 14, verse 1, David is saying that if you lack that fear of God, that reverence and that awe of God, um, your spiritual perception, your spiritual abilities, and particularly your moral qualities are going to be corrupt and uh, you will be using yourself as a guide for the rest of your life rather than God's word. That's a very interesting um, view that you've expressed there, Brenton. Will, you want to add something? Billy Graham commenting on uh, the fool says in his heart there is no God says many of the proponents that seek to deny God can be increasingly found in academic circles where atheists are warmly welcomed. Though they hold a variety of advanced degrees and are published uh, in noted academic journals, the Bible clearly labels them as fools. As mankind refuses to acknowledge the supremacy of God, the Bible says that professing to be wise, they become fools. He's quoting, of course, Romans 1 verse 22. But what may be highly estimated, or what may be highly esteemed among men can be pure foolishness to God Almighty. Yes. Where are the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? <laughs> Quoting 1 Corinthians one twenty. I think he puts it pretty well. Okay. Ken? Yes, I just wanted to add that over the years, many people I've spoken to uh, regarding God and the Bible, and I usually say to them that if you look into these things, you can prove them to yourself. Now, I, I have to, or I, I sincerely believe anyone who starts and looks into the Bible with an open mind, you would have to be convinced there is a greater being out there, and we're not here by accident. But I believe myself that one of the reasons people don't check these things out is that if you come to the conclusion there is a God, then you have a decision to make. Do you go the way of the world or do you go the way of God? And I think this is their challenge. Yes, that's a very good point. Good point. Now, now, Will, the Apostle Paul wrote about those who discount God's existence and creatorship. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 22, the Apostle Paul makes a comment. Would you like to share that with us? Yes, let me read the text there. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of the people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, 
They neither glorified him as God or gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they become fools. Uh, Lend a comment on this. Um, It seems as if the Apostle Paul is here saying that um, you cannot but believe in God because there's enough evidence in uh, the created world around us, so much so as to leave us totally without excuse, even without the written scriptures, that there is a God and a creator out there. And God could judge man just by um, the evidences that surround him in the created works. Thank you, Will. Now, in a previous program, we uh, shared with you about a text in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 7 relating to a message that's to go out to the world in the latter days. But the Old Testament writer Nehemiah had something to say about this too. Joe, how does Nehemiah 9.6 relate to that text in Revelation 14.7? Well, the, the contents of both texts are almost, well, identical because it calls our attention to God, the creator. It says in Nehemiah, um, reading just parts of it, Thou, even thou art Lord alone. There's no other God. Thou hast made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all the things and the seas and so forth. And so here in the Old Testament, Nehemiah is reminding the Israelites that, you know, they were so inclined to worship the things around them. He calls their attention to their God, the God who had created all things and was the only God. And so we have a similar scenario here in Revelation where the world is called to acknowledge God, the creator of heavens and earth. If we look at Revelation 14.7, it says there's a voice that's a loud voice that's saying, fear God and give glory to him. And it's related to the judgment. The judgment is come and worship him. Again, here we have him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. So even in right throughout history, right up until even right at the end, we as people are more inclined naturally to worship the things around us, the things that we see, to worship ourselves, our own desires, rather than to acknowledge God. And I think both of these texts call us to acknowledge God, for he is God alone. He is the creator and sustainer of all that we see, our ourselves, everything that we love and hold dear. And so, um, you know, it's it's a good reminder, isn't it? And we sometimes get so busy that we forget that too. So if we need to stop and pause and worship God in our hearts. Yes, thank you for that, Joe. I think all of you panel members have no problem in accepting God as creator. Is that right? Yes. Absolutely. What is something, and I'm opening this up for general comments, what is something in nature that made you exclaim it's impossible for this to have made itself? So has anybody got something to share? What about you, Will? 
And I think there's no earthly reason, for example, why the humble Australian rainbow lorikeet should have so many brilliant colours. It's certainly not for camouflage, like they say, of the zebra stripes, or perhaps even to braggingly attract a mate with its technicolour coat. Uh, my question is, when did it itself decide or reason that it needs to dress much more lavishly to function well. So they say it evolves by choice into a more spectacular species. In other words, um, evolution within that species uh, by choice acts to uh, improve life in that way. You know, I don't think it's possible. Uh, the, the Bible claims that no wishing or planning could change the spots on a leopard or even an intelligent Ethiopian change the color of his skin in Jeremiah 13, 23. Who can by choice change uh, the way you look? Uh, it's impossible. Well, apart from having a facelift or something like that, <laughs> I agree with you, Will. Uh, Ken, I think you want to uh, share something that's really made you sort out in your own mind whether this was made by God or whether this just happened. Yes? Well, again, I, I looked into spider webs. Those bit of news. It's probably not my uh, most, uh, I'm not that uh, keen on spiders, but anyway, but anyway, we have to look at some of the amazing things. And a spider web is sparkling in the sunlight can be a truly beautiful sight. But these webs have some additional surprises. Length to weight ratio of the material is remarkable, and spiders seem to be able to rig a web just about anywhere. And some people may be surprised to learn some of the spider webs in some of the uh, South American countries, as an example, they stretch 30 or 40 feet across a river. That's incredible. The other interesting thing, spider webs don't intercept prey as a lot of people think. They think perhaps a oh, spider builds a web there and things just fly into it by mistake or accident. But that's actually not the case. The actual web actually attracts insects and things to travel to see what it is. And some of the other amazing things about spider webs, not all of the web is sticky. There's only certain parts of it. And they also make them, as I said, they're very shiny, so they have a better visual effect and uh, especially in UV wavelengths. Uh, it is so interesting. And spiders also decorate their webs also to attract insects and predators. And they also think very, they also think very big spiders. Um, some of the biggest uh, spiders I think we have in Australia is the orb spiders, and they make some very, very large webs. And one of the other fascinating things that most spiders, not all, but many of them, actually make their web every single day. It's yeah. not there for weeks and weeks. They make a new web every yeah. day. So for something so small to make something this size, and if you ever stop and look at it, the intricacies of a wall, it's a piece of engineering. And also uh, engineers today have found out that the material strength of the substance that they use it's one of the strongest substances in the world. Yeah, really stronger, quite amazing. Stronger than steel, I've heard. 
Yes, it's it's amazing. Uh, Helen first. Yeah, I first became interested in nature, particularly through the Bible, where there's a text that says about the ants that we need to go to the ants, and we will learn much. And that's where I started off in in studying ants. Then I got hold of a book called Why We Believe in Creation, Not in Evolution. I don't know if any of the panel have seen it. It's quite a large book, and um, <clears throat> I was absolutely totally fascinated. So I went from ants to bees. And um, and then just even looking at at the human body and what have you, there is so much evidence, I believe, um, in the creation that to me it it just it just defies evolution. For example, let me just mention quickly: when I looked at the bees, they're counted as the masterpieces of creation. They have an amazing design for a purpose. They have pollen collecting legs, their antenna, their bees wings. You know, powerful. And why does a bee have compound eyes? You know, just look at the eyes. It's just amazing. The bee stinger and the sting. Um, they have a special honey stomach and they make a, pe- a bee glue and a wax. And, you know, you just it just goes on and on and on. And I'm just fascinated, you know. Even the hereditary the, of the bees, they've got leafcutter bees like they have leafcutter ants. And they've even got their own language. Um, they work in a community, they have a community instinct. And I was reading about J. Henry Fabre. He was the great French entomologist. He said, the bee's instinct is fixed, unchanging, limited and non-progressive as the law of gravity, but it leaves no room for evolution. And I think as we go through, most um, creationists will use the fact of uh, bombardier beetle, you know, that completely defies evolution. And um, I don't know if I'm going too far in this, but um, I believe that Darwin even said that if you could find something that um, showed what they call irreducible complexity, in other words, it can't be reduced down any further, um, otherwise it would blow itself up or it wouldn't be, you know, what it is. And he said his theory would go out the window. Well, the bombardier beetle is used exactly for that because it has two chemicals in the stomach. And I'm going to stop at that point because I could go on for hours. I've studied this area and it's just, it blows my mind, even just looking at the tiny little buds and everything and how intricate things are and how every leaf is different on every tree. It's just amazing. It's interesting how the different ones of us observe different things, but we came come to the same conclusion. Before you go, Joe. Brenton was indicating he'd like to share something. Oh, just briefly about the leaf. Um, Helen has touched on the leaf. I have a, a book here called By Design, which is one of the most interesting books you'll ever read on this particular subject. Leaves in the main are flat. The reason they are flat is uh, for photosynthesis purposes and for um, getting as much sunlight as possible on them as you can. Now, if you look at our designs today with solar panels, solar panels are flat so as to uh, produce as much energy as possible. And it's interesting that they have studied leaves and they have discovered that in order for a leaf to be flat, all processes starting with the middle of the leaf, the stem, if you will, or the the section that runs down the middle of the leaf, uh, all of that right through to the tip of the leaf all has to develop at the same time in order for a leaf to be flat. That's why you sometimes get leaves that are not flat because there's been a disproportionate um, increase in in development. 
So the humble leaf um, is just another example of how God has set in place the process of photosynthesis, the process of um, a leaf development, so as to get the maximum amount of energy that it needs for the purpose that God has. And that's only one of probably 100,000 different examples, but all of these things must surely teach you. Heard you use this uh, comment on the air in the past, the term primordial, primordial soup. Most of us know that evolutionists believe that we came from primordial soup. There is simply no evidence whatsoever to support that hypothesis. All right. Thank you for that, Brenton. I, I believe that you are something of a personal nature, and, and, yeah, I think these facts are amazing, but I think my earliest um, thoughts on this matter about the existence of God and to create a God was just the miracle of life and consciousness, the fact that we're not just, you know, we've got, you know, you, there is something going on and it's inexplicable. And, you know, we're not just zombies. You know, you, know, you could be alive, but there's no life in, in the body, if you like, in the mind. There's nothing happening. But the fact that we're alive and that we can enjoy and interact and um just be aware, be creative, just to be alive is amazing. I, I know I'm using the word again, but, you know, like it's been said, I wouldn't be dead for quits. It's beautiful to hear what you've got to say, and I could go on all day because this is something that really interests me, but there are three editions of Charles Darwin's autobiography, and I was lucky enough, I have the second or third edition but I was lucky enough to read the first edition, which has been taken out of print. And Darwin said something there that really made my ears prick up. He said in explaining all of how things are supposed to have developed from one to another, he said, and I suppose I must admit the principle of first cause. And then he goes on to say, and that I must describe to being God. But that's been taken out of the later editions, which were authorised by the family. So uh, I think we're getting being fed selected information through magazines like Science and other evolutionary biased programs. Well, in Psalm 96.9, there is a mention of God being beautiful would you like to share that text then perhaps explain a little bit about God being beautiful? Yes. Um, the, the psalm actually says, worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness or in the beauty of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. You know, visualizing God as holy but also beautiful. The Almighty, I believe, has an eye for beauty himself. If we see that in the order and the perfection that uh, surrounds us, this must testify to the beauty of his character. I mentioned the lorikeet a moment ago. You know, there's no practical reason why he needs all that color. It must be that God just loves beauty. Now, God's beauty must also be revealed in uh, his law of love in the forgiveness that we experience through Jesus Christ and uh, in his promise of eternal life to every one of us that believe. 
God is all round beautiful and full of splendor, I believe. Yes. In fact, we can see that in nature. The things that God made are wonderful, really. But of course, in our day and age, a lot of beauty has been lost and some things have become ugly and bad. Ken, could you just name quickly a couple of these things that were created beautiful and are no longer? Well, there's, there's really, as you say, Lynn, there's just so many of them, but maybe one just pops to mind right away is animals. Uh, God has put all these beautiful animals on the planet, not only uh, for the uh, for mankind to look at, but also for mankind to own and enjoy their company. And yet so often these poor animals are mistreated in so many ways and they're not looked after at all. And many of them are, are killed just for the sake of sport. And it, it's just, uh, it's so, so bad. And I think one of the other things that initially God, I think, put inside mankind love for, is for other people. And again, that's lacking so much today. We've, we've, many of us have lost the love of a fellow man and helping others. Yes. Well, a godly woman um, wrote a truly thought-provoking thing about a hundred years ago. She says about uh, cruelty to animals, she says, it is because of man's sin that the whole creation groans and travails in pain together, quoting Romans 8 verse 22. Then goes on to say, suffering and death were thus entailed, not only upon the human race, but upon the animals. Surely then, surely then it is fitting for man to seek to lighten instead of increasing the weight of suffering, which his transgression has brought upon God's cheap creatures. Uh, He will abuse animals because he has them in his power, is both a coward and a tyrant. The disposition to cause pain, whether to our fellow man or to the brute creation, is satanic. Many do not realize that their cruelty will ever be known because the poor dumb animals cannot reveal it. But could the eyes of these men be opened, as were those of Balaam, they would see an angel of God standing as a witness to testify against them in the courts above. A record goes up to heaven, and a day is coming when judgment will be pronounced against those who abuse God's creatures. Virtually all scientists these days believe that the pre-antediluvian atmosphere did not contain methane, ammonia or hydrogen, which are reducing gases. Now, that's a very interesting thought. Yes, well, study of the arts and sciences, uh, sciences can and should draw us closer to the character and heart of God. We are part of God's handiwork and his scientific phenomena. The psalmist David said in Psalm 139, I praise you, God, because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And we looked at that a little bit earlier. In recognition of this, we can appreciate who God is. Any field of study does not fulfill its proper potential 
unless it is salvitic and redemptive, that is, directed toward God. Brenton, 1 Timothy chapter 6 is a denunciation of human wickedness followed by an exhortation to goodness. Would you like to read that and then answer this question? How is a true Christian to live? I will, um, but given time, Len, I'll just concentrate on verses 6, 7 and 8. Now godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But then we go down a bit further, in verse 12, I think, Len, where it talks about fighting the good fight of faith, laying hold of eternal life to which you were also called, and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Paul is admonishing Timothy, a young co-worker, that people who practice lawlessness, who do not use, as it says in verse 3, the doctrine of Jesus Christ, and who follow any other path, um, he says they become obsessed with disputes, arguments over words, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, baseless things, and so on and so forth. Really what he's suggesting is that if you want to live a good Christian life, um, first of all, um, you must follow the Lord faithfully, fight the good fight of faith. That means to maintain your faith in a faithless generation. You might remember that Jesus said at one point in his ministry, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And the second point is to lay hold on eternal life. To lay hold on it means to hold it fast. It means, ideally, that you have already received eternal life because you've accepted Jesus. But it means to keep that relationship. By keeping that relationship, keeping that connection, you are laying hold on eternal life. They're the principles, I think, Len, that we need here as we come towards the end of 2020, which has been a very turbulent year for us all. We need that assurance and that stability. Okay, thank you for that. Despite the false knowledge and error that surrounds us, what should be our aim? I know you've sort of answered that, but could you just add a little bit there? Uh, Fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed with good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I think what's important here is that by confessing, Paul in another place says that if we confess with our mouth and believe in our hearts that Jesus is the Son of God, we will be saved. I think, Len, the importance in this text, 1 Timothy 6, verse 12, is simply this. The confession is vitally important. When we confess Jesus before others, we are in fact growing spiritually. We're not only sharing with other people and encouraging them and inviting them to come and know Jesus for themselves and be saved. We are, in fact, stating our belief. It's not just an intellectual exercise. We're actually stating it in words and also in actions. And I think that Paul is saying here, Timothy, you need to keep doing this. You've done it before many people in the past. That is, confess your faith in Jesus and you're going to continue to do it with many in the future. I think if we use a, a practical application, Len, 
That's something that we need to be practicing each day of our lives is to confess with our mouth and um, accept Jesus and encourage others to follow him. In other words, to model us because we are modeling Christ. All right. Thank you very much. Helen? Yeah, just quickly, I'd like to refer to verse 11 as well as verse 12 in, in that 1 Timothy 6. Bear in mind that we're, we're thinking about what a Christian needs to do. As a Christian, we've given our life to the Lord. He is the one that saves us. So doing works and that doesn't save us at all. But we do it because we love him. And I believe that, that Paul here is using very active and very forceful words to describe the Christian life. He's using words like run, pursue, fight, hold tightly. You know, some think that Christianity is a very passive religion, but clearly we have an active faith when you think about it. It's, it's certainly active. We're training, working hard, sacrificing and doing what we know is right. And perhaps sometimes we kind of miss that part because we say, can't do that because that's by works. But we do it because we love him. And Paul is really admonishing us, you know, uh, when he says, run from all the evil things, pursue righteousness and a godly life, you know, along with faith, love, perseverance, gentleness, fight the good fight for the true faith. Hold tightly to the eternal life of which God has called you which you have confessed so well before many witnesses. I think that is the aim for us as Christians. So how does this relate to Christians and the environment? Well, we should also be very active in looking after the environment to the best of our knowledge. You know, we can't just ignore what's happening, you know, the pollution and all the rest of it. We just need to make sure that we are not contributing to it. Be more conscious of what we're doing in the present time. The uh, commission that God gave man back at creation was to rule over the environment, meaning to care for it, to be in charge, if you like, to make sure it's cared for. And apart from the spiritual things that you've mentioned there, I believe it's very important for us as Christians to care for the environment, not to abuse it. Well, Proverbs chapter 1 contrasts wisdom and foolishness. Wisdom is demonstrated when someone evaluates the evidence of certain ideas or actions and chooses that which is good. Foolishness is the result of making bad choices. Joe, where does wisdom start and why? Well, Len, in Proverbs, written by the wisest man that ever lived, aside from Christ. In uh, chapter 1, verse 7, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and and discipline. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, it says in some, in some translations. And so the importance is that we are to stay close to God, to understand and to revere his word, and this is where we this is the source of wisdom and all knowledge but fools despise wisdom and discipline and so some might say well is fearing the lord a form of discipline well if we look further up in at the beginning of chapter 1 of proverbs it says the proverbs of solomon son of david king of israel for attaining wisdom and discipline for understanding words of insight for acquiring a disciplined and prudent life why it says, 
for doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to the simple. So clearly the beginning of wisdom, fearing the Lord, is also in developing, as you said earlier, knowing which is, you know, making good choices and, you know, doing what is right and just and fair. And that sounds simple, doesn't it? But it's not as easy as we think because we are so prone, humans are so prone to making bad choices that aren't fair, that aren't right, aren't just, and that are self-centered. So, yeah, that's just some some thoughts. I'm sure it's a, you know, we could talk about it for hours, but, yeah. Okay. Thank you for that, Joe. It seems very much to me that as we fear the Lord, we are also being involved in a discipline, a discipline in how to focus our minds, how we develop a worldview. That's all a discipline from what we are learning about God. And this, this particular study we're doing today is about education in the arts and sciences. Anyone who's been educated has to um, realise that they are being disciplined and the fear of the Lord is a discipline. Now, which is more important, the discipline or the fear of the Lord? Well, one, it starts with the fear of the Lord. The discipline comes afterwards. Helen, Hmm. is there any fear of the Lord in the teaching of evolution? Well, when you're looking at that particular verse, and Joe, I thought that you explained that very well, wisdom actually means far more than than just um, simply knowing a lot. It's a basic attitude that affects every aspect of our life. And, and that text actually says the foundation of knowledge is to fear the Lord, to honour and respect God, to live in awe of his power and to obey his word. Now, when you look at... Um, evolution quite often it's known as a godless religion so i believe that in teaching of evolution no i don't believe there is the fear of the lord in that evolution actually dismisses god cuts god out from being the creator and um even though it's you know it's a theory but many people believe it but you know i'm sorry it is a godless religion They've cut God out from the very beginning. And that that um, verse tells us that the foundation of God is in knowledge is to fear the Lord. And um, I don't believe that's in evolution. Although some people would argue about theistic evolution, but we're not going into that at the moment. Okay. In some court cases where um, I think of the one, the Dover one in the United States, uh, where they uh, tried to, they had this court case. It concerned a school in the city. One of the school counsellors gave all the students a book about creation and all this big court case happened over that. The court case simply was trying to prove that the school should continue to teach evolution and being a believer in creation is not science. Now, here's the real point I'm coming to. Evolution is not science. Helen, in what you were saying there, you called it a godless religion. And we have to recognise that because science depends on observation and repetition 
And if anyone accuses those of us who believe in creation, it's not science. No, it's not science. It's a faith. But evolution is not science either. It's a godless religion. Will, I know you've got something you would like to share with us. Len, from a Christian perspective, um, what does knowledge of the arts and scientists really mean if it does not involve knowing the difference between right and wrong, good and evil, truth and error? You know, all one, has to, all one have, has to do is to read, for example, uh, a bit of the lives of some of those deemed the world's greatest artists in order to see that they have wonderful skill and talent, but that doesn't equate to a moral or an upright life. But perhaps we could argue that, too, the scientists involved in the working of creating biological or chemical weapons of mass destruction might be highly educated, highly gifted. But what are the fruits of their work? As stated before, knowledge is in and of itself not necessarily a good thing. All right. Thank you, Will. You know, I was having a discussion with somebody one day and he said to me, I believe in Jesus and I believe in what he said, but I don't believe in all that Old Testament stuff. Now, we never got time to continue that particular um, conversation because we had to go somewhere quickly. And uh, so I never actually got around to finish answering his statement. But what did Jesus say? And what did Jesus believe with regard to that Old Testament stuff that this particular person didn't believe in, Brenton? Well, interestingly enough, Len, um Jesus was asked a question, as he was on many occasions by the Pharisees, uh, this time once again trying to trap him. The question was, is it lawful for us to divorce our wives or not? And rather than uh, come down on one side or another, I'm going to read verse 6 of Mark 10, which says, But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. In other words, Jesus recognised creation as an act he recognised the creation of male and female. That leaves no room for um, evolution. It leaves no room whatsoever for any of the other forms, theistic evolution that Helen mentioned earlier on, or any other form of evolution. It's rather interesting. The leading Christian organisation in the world claims that their views on creation are not incompatible with evolution may I say kindly uh, that they are out of step with what Jesus himself said because um, rather than get into dispute with the Pharisees and scribes, he referred them back to the beginning of creation where God made the male and female. Uh, Mark 13 verse 17 says pretty much the same thing. In other words, Christ recognised creation as an event. He recognised it as the beginning of everything that we know in this world today. Okay, well, Jesus is our example. So if he believed in creation and did not believe in evolution, I reckon that's good enough. Well, in the book of Job, 
Various human arguments are presented to explain Job's catastrophes. And although Job remained loyal to God, he does question Job's dealings with him. Ken, would you read Job 38, the first five verses, and make a quick comment? Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee and answer thy me. Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measures thereof, if thy knowledge, or who hath stretched the line upon it? And here God is basically saying to Job, but also mankind, that the wisdom of God is far beyond the wisdom of mankind. And here God's putting it into, into perspective that God has always been from the beginning, which is something we can't get our head around, but God has always been there. And man came along later on. And man these days is trying to put himself in the place of God. But God clearly lays it out here that he has been forever and he has the power and the wisdom and everything that existed before man came into being. Yes, God just outlines. Although God made man as the highest life form of his creation, man must recognize that he is far from being the highest life form in the universe. True education in any discipline, especially in the arts and sciences, must recognize that God is far greater far wiser, far more intelligent, far more powerful than we will ever be. Studies and discoveries in any scientific discipline are only finding out what God has already known and brought into being. Our origins and our existence must be attributed to him, the creator. We are to worship him and see his handiwork in that which he has created. This is the message that needs to be presented in Christians' churches, homes, schools and universities. Well, thank you, panel, for sharing your knowledge uh, with us today. And I trust, listeners, that this will be thought-provoking for you, that you will give God the glory for yourself and that which surrounds us. Will, would you close this study today with prayer. Loving Father in heaven, we recognize you as far above us and who are we to try and bring you down to our level? Even as Job might have wanted to do, try to understand you. Father, we pray that in our understanding of our God, the Almighty, and in the teachings in our schools and churches and in our own families, we might, uh, we might elevate you and not question your greatness. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, thank you for joining us today, listeners, and we hope you join us again next time. Until then, may God bless you and keep walking in the footsteps of Jesus. I can do all things Through Christ who gives me strength 
But sometimes I wonder what he can do through me No great success to show No glory on my own But in my weakness he is there To let me know his strength is perfect when our strength is gone he'll carry us when we can carry on raised in his power the weak become strong his strength is perfect His strength is perfect We can only know The power that He holds When we truly see how deep our weakness goes His strength in us begins Where ours comes to an end And He hears our humble cry And He proves again That His strength is perfect When our strength is gone He'll carry us when we can Carry on Raised in His power The weak become strong His strength is perfect His strength is perfect his strength is perfect His strength is perfect